0: Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Today's guest is actor, writer, director, playwright, John Polono. It's very important for me that this interview airs uncensored. John Polono started playwriting and has written things such as Lost and Found, Lost Girls, and Small Engine Repair. Recently, his play, Small Engine Repair, has been adapted into a movie. I discovered Small Engine Repair during a very dark time in my life, and I went to see the play five times. Yes, that's right. I saw that play five times. About six years later, I had the balls to ask him if I could do the play, and I did it last summer, and it changed my life. It ended up being a very small world in that one of my guests, Shea Wiggum, ended up doing the movie adaptation of Small Engine Repair. John Polono is someone who's had such a profound impact on me. He's been so open to me, so great to me, and I've learned so much from him and his work. John has such an amazing future ahead of him and so many awesome projects. However, this was my first field recording, and it was a trial by fire. I apologize that it's not up to our usual standards, but I promise you that the interview is superior and one of my favorites. Here it is. John Polono, how you doing, man? Good, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, man. It's great to have you on. I'm such a big fan of you as a human and just your writing. I've never really had the chance to kind of explain the story of how I discovered Smolingin' Repair, so I kind of wanted to save it for the air. In 2000, was it 2013 when that, was at MCC? Uh, yeah, in
1: 2000, yes, 2013.
0: Yeah, so, I was, like, going through a breakup, and it was, like, the darkest point in my life, and I had, like, four or five friends staying with me, pretty much on, like, suicide watch. Jeez. I was just drinking and doing tons of drugs, and, uh, I heard about the play, because I was a big fan of James Badge Dale, and, you know, I love- it? yeah, yeah, he's great, he's one of the best, man, and the Lord tells such an iconic theater. I love seeing things there whenever I can and supporting it. And I didn't, I didn't know your work, you know, and I didn't know anything about it. And I find those tend to be the best theatrical experiences when you kind of know nothing. Mm-hmm. And all my friends were like, dude, anything that's like not you at a bar, let's go. And like none of them were theater going crowds. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and they were all like, not really friends with each other. They were all there for me. So it was cool. It was, it was quite rare to get those people into the theater. And, you know, I, I think you only get the first viewing experience, whether it's theater, you know, cinema once that, that feeling of discovering. it. And I remember like 20 minutes in, we all look at each other and we're like, this is fucking incredible. And it was the first time I had laughed in a really long time. Oh, that's great. And it was the most healing thing. And, and, and it, I wasn't really focusing on my acting, and I wasn't really – I just wasn't put together, man. And that inspired me in, in so many ways to get back into it, and I wouldn't be here – I mean, obviously, I discovered you through it, but I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if it weren't for that piece. So well, that's great. everything in my career, I credit to you because you really set me back on track without even knowing. Me.
1: But that's so beautiful, man. What do you think it was about the play that resonated so deeply with me? I,
0: I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, which Mm -hmm. is not quite Manchester, but not far from. And Mm -hmm. I have a lot of friends like that. And when I drink and do drugs, man, I'm, I'm pretty much, so there's, we should say for the audience listening, Sponge and Repair is a play you've written about three best friends who meet up under unusual circumstances and (laughs) it takes a crazy turn. And, uh, probably spoiler alert, we're going to dig into some things about the play, but, I think it was just being stuck and I identified with those characters and being in a rut and just kind of like that amalgamation of drama and comedy was exactly what I needed at that mm-hmm. moment. And it's so funny. Like as soon as I saw that play, I bought my tickets that night to see it again. Mm-hmm. And then I had a director who's having a moment in New York on this podcast. And he was like, dude, you took me to see it. And I was like, no, I didn't. Oh, and okay. he was like, he was like, dude, yeah, you took me. And I was like, I went one time in a blackout and just bought tickets and took this guy to a fucking play. <laughs> That's That goes to show you the state I was in. But man, yeah, it was, oh man, I needed it. And then sure enough, you know, six six years later, I was like, I kind of felt, not that I'm, I'm 29, but I was like, I want to do this. And yeah. you were cool enough to let me do it, man. And so here we are.
1: Of course, man. I mean, because that's unusual. Usually the plays just get done and you don't hear it now I think what happens is in New York because we had had a production there yeah for whatever reason it's just the the request floated by me which doesn't always happen like they do it all the time yeah you don't hear about it but every now and then you have to give it I I think it's because you know the MCC production had been um reviewed in New York, and then also because we are doing the movie. For whatever reason, my agents were like, hey, take a look at this. So I'm obviously really glad that that worked out, and I was like – I mean, I'm always like – I'm so excited when anybody wants to do anything, especially that play. Yeah. That play is like – tends to attract a certain sort of – kind of, you know, that sort of archetype of like, you know, actors who look at it, and they're like, you can do that play reasonably cheap, and it also – gravitates towards theater companies that are a little edgier and risky riskier yeah you know um they're not like the Lord theaters where 350 people sit in there you know it's more of a thing the kind of theaters like that's why i got into theater you know for stuff that pushes the envelope so uh anyway i was really obviously glad that we I, me too man it's so a real just, honor and I'm so excited I had said no I'll that <laughs> but usually I'm that, so sorry I missed that production by the way we were obviously oh uh, no man and the and movie and, so.
0: and, and, and yeah it's crazy enough you know a friend of mine ended up doing the movie who was gonna come to the play but we'll dig into all that so I, I'd yeah. like to start at the beginning so you grew up in the Northeast, right?
1: I did. I was born in, uh, Long Island. Um, we lived there. My parents are, my, uh, my dad's born and raised in Queens. My mom is born and raised in Rhode Island. And then she moved down to New York City for various melodramatic reasons. <clears throat> and then they met, we were, we only lived there till I think it was about three or four. Yeah. And then we lived, my dad moved as an engineer. He moved to, we moved to Ohio for like a year and a half. And then we moved when I was in second grade to, uh, New Hampshire, okay. Londonderry, in New Hampshire, which is sort of Manchester adjacent, as where it's just the play in the movie. And then, yeah, yeah I just grew up there I and to it, University of New Hampshire and all that shit.
0: And your your childhood memories
1: like New Hampshire's home for you, not yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, yeah. you're was three years old when I moved out of Long Island. Although I did live in New York City for a while, and you know, have so many roots there that feel close to that. You know, I go to Ellis Island, I see my grandparents. There. Yeah, so I have a deep connection in New York City. But of course, in my formative years, I was raised. In, in New Hampshire, so that's always what I consider where I grew up.
0: And, and in these formative years, what, what, what were the arts like? Were your parents encouraging you to get into them, or how did that happen?
1: Yeah, I mean, they were... You know, it's hard. I, it wasn't until I moved, lived in New York City, and went to a film school for an exchange program. Where, where did you go? Uh, I went to NYU. So, I Oh, I went to, to NYU, too. I, I wanted to go to NYU because of Martin Scorsese. Yeah. And um, my parents bought these investment properties in Manchester, these like slums. And the idea was they were going to sell one and use that money. Hey, yeah, you can go to wherever you want in college. So they my parents went bankrupt when I was in college, high school. So just ended up going to UNH and I saved money. <laughs> I actually had a law mowing business. Saved money and then... Paid for this uh, summer long program at NYU called Sight and Sound. Yeah. Which is like two semesters worth squeezed into a I know the class. Well, I've done right. so many the films So I was right. like, I went out and did that and I, that changed my life. I did that in between my junior and senior year of college. Wow. Uh, while I was at UNH. So I got credits to UNH while I did it <coughs> and then stayed in their shitty little dorm. I was like, why is this dorm so cheap? Which one did you say at? Ruben Hall. Oh yeah, that's where yeah, that's so. Well, there's no air conditioning. Yeah, it's, it's all like <laughs> <laughs> uh anyway, amazing experience first time i'd ever sort of been and i was terrified initially but the first time i'd ever sort of walked into a room and i was filled with more diversity than i'd ever seen for sure more international people than i'd ever grown up around and most importantly people who were just dedicated to the arts like they had a film language they wanted to do those things i sort of artistically it was too sort of chicken shit i think i kind of closeted that part of myself a lot um so, yeah, I don't, I don't think, I didn't grow up in an area which had, is at least from my perspective, a huge, uh, access to the arts. Yeah. It's not, I think my parents were f- pragmatic and, <clears throat> you know, I don't know, it's complicated. I think on one hand, if I had had parents who were like, oh my God, you're a genius, let me read everything you write, that would have been nice, but yeah. I had the opposite where I was like, I didn't read anything. So, yeah, I just approved. made so, me try that much harder. Yeah. So, uh. And it's just a New England thing, man. You just keep your cards close to your chest. I mean, they saw Small Drew Fair off-Broadway, and they came out, and then my mom was like, well, I'm, you know, I'm really proud of you. That was really nice. God, it's so much colder here than I thought it would be. Like, they just don't, you know, <laughs> to, like, do that. So, uh, yeah, so you just don't look for that. Yeah. You know, um, so, and, you know, I was really into sports, and I was really into uh kind of hiding that part of myself, the more yeah. sensitive, like, artistic thing. I was kind of embarrassed about it. You know, I never would have told anybody, really. You know, and I started writing short stories and shit like that. But and I was, like, in third grade. I, it's funny, man. You definitely get, as a child, I think you are shaped by what you get rewarded by. So in third grade, we had to write, like, fictional stories. And I was just, I went to this fucking library, and I found this book about, like, a kid who had a raccoon as a pet. I love that book yeah so I literally plagiarized it changed some of the names I mean, I took what was in there and like four scenes I'm like 50% of the book yeah I literally plagiarized and changed the name put in like some other sequences and drew a bunch of pictures and it like won the Young Authors Award in like New Hampshire no way so I went out and did all this stuff and I was like I didn't know and I remember I got the award and all this shit and I remember my third grade teacher came up to me and she had found the book in the library she's like did you copy this and I was like yeah just some pictures <laughs> <laughs> but that sort of lot that plagiarism launched my sort of you know career and then and then I kept writing year after year just these short stories and, and you
0: did know, you have like some some guidance on, on writing mentors that kinda of helped you develop your
1: style sort of? No not. I Stephen King I was obsessed with. Got it. Uh just in reading that. And what I think I initially was gravitated towards horror because of the sort of shock factor and the like I kind of think, like, in the environment I was raised in, it wasn't like soft, introspective writing that I've, you know, gravitated towards later in life. It was more like, dude, this is so fucked up, read this. Yeah. And I remember, like, in high school, a big sort of uh, defining moment for me was I had a creative writing class. This, uh, I had two teachers that were great in high school for one was Miss Giddings, Janet Giddings. She was this lovely, soft lady with glasses who was just super positive about everything. And, you know, I wrote some essay about, seeing a dog hit by a car, and she was like, oh, I was crying and all this stuff, and she read in front of class. So that was like, oh, my God, wow. And then I had this guy, Mr. Connolly, in a creative writing class, and, like, he would let you write whatever you wanted to, language, content, whatever. And I, I wrote this story that when I look back, I'm like, Jesus, I'm like, if I wrote that today, I'd probably get arrested. It was, like, just some terrible story about, I don't think i would ever even had sex at that point, about a kid uh-huh. who goes to pick up his date, and he's going to get laid, and he's so excited, and then, he's the mother needs help lifting something up uh, to And then she slips in the ladder, hits her head and dies. And he like covers with a carpet. So it won't interrupt the date. I mean, it was just terrible. Yeah. But I thought it was funny and people would laugh. So I was like, cool. I just went for sort of the shock value of that. But that was a very seminal moment. Having reading that story in class and having people like, Oh my God, like hang on to it. Yeah. It was the first taste I had of something sort of theatrical. I can do this. Or I can do this, but also like, I like this. I like, yeah. You know, keeping an audience in mind and doing that in a way that I felt Stephen King did when I read. And then I went to college and you know became an English major. Uh, again, I was too much of a pussy to just say, "Hey, I want to be a writer." So I was an English communications dual major, studying, taking creative writing classes. But I didn't go to like Iowa. I didn't go. To, you know, I wanted to go to film school, but I stayed local because uh, you know I had to pay for it. yes, yeah. I, I, I think I was. <clears throat> I think my fear of really being who I feel like I'm meant to be, I think it probably ate up 10 years of my career, you know, uh, it, it, in, 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 when I instead hitchhiking and living in Colorado and snowboarding and you know working construction, I mean, in one way that loves life experiences yeah, feed into it, totally. but I think it took me a really long time to have the balls to just say, I'm, this is what I am.
0: Same as I opened the podcast, and I credit you for that. And, uh, and I'm curious to ask you, you know, what while you were doing this writing, at what point did you decide to kind of dip your toes into acting? Was that a logical progression of of, of reading your writing? Like, how did that start to come together?
1: Well, I did, uh, when I went to that NYU course, you know, you were in this little film crew, and is uh, that okay my dog's walking around with his oh. nails, that's fine in the background. <laughs> <clears throat> you do these like film crews and then you just act in your own short films and shit and other people's short films and they would always ask me to do it I was really good at it I had no idea I just kind of had that within me I've always been sort of animated and it just clicked so I did that at NYU and then I watched the short films when we, they came out and I was like everybody's like wow you're really fucking good at these yeah you're really good and I was like really <laughs> so then when I moved out to LA eventually I had I was working in the mayor Room my Castle Rock Entertainment and there was a guy uh, named Phil Santani, who's still a friend to this day and he and i hit it off like i was actually i was a temp at uh at castle rock and they eventually hired me and i was in the mailroom. and so phil was like my like the, the dude who would like show me the road yeah and he was taking this acting class he's like you should check it out and i was like well at that point i was like well i want to be a writer i want to be a screenwriter yeah and he the conventional wisdom which is true is like all writers should take some kind of acting class it definitely sure. helps So I started taking this acting class, uh, it was Laura Gardner and, you know, you don't, you don't do scenes from Pulp Fiction. You don't do scenes from like, you know, the wire you do plays. Yeah. And I had been at that point in my life to like one play. So the teacher would get, uh, the first play I ever did in this part of this intro class was The Rainmaker, oh, not The Rainmaker, um, Death of a Salesman. Oh, yeah. Playing Biff. That was and, my first play. Oh, is it really? Yeah, I played Willie Loman. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but so I read this play and I was like, holy shit. So I just started to consume all these plays, all these classic plays that, I mean, even though as an English major you read literature, we didn't really read plays of the interesting Interstace, house and Shakespeare. Yeah. And, you know, stuff like that. So I just started to devour these. Michael Malley had a great play. And then, you know, Lieutenant Inishmore, Pillow Man, all this stuff. McDonough, I could totally see that. Man, Manna, um, you know, Sarah Kane. I started to read all this stuff and I was like, holy fuck. It just clicked with me. So then I started to write monologues for myself at first. Like Eric Bogosian style? Just to do the class. Yeah, Yeah. okay. And then, you know, instead of doing scenes, a lot of the people would be like, hey, can you write a scene for me? So I wrote a scene for me and this other girl. We did it and it was like great. And it was like a one act play. And then other people started asking. So I just kept writing scenes for other people in class and they were more, not so much scenes as like really small one acts. And then at some point we got a group of us together, including my now wife and we started a theater company and we were going to produce a, a selection of one act plays Four of them, two of which were mine. The company <laughs> being Rogue Machine. This is, this is before Rogue Machine. Okay. It's called okay. Jabberwock. Okay. Which eventually, that 501c3 status of Jabberwocky became Rogue Machine. Got it. So we did that and, uh, you know, these one acts and, and we did one show of it and did really well. You know, we had like acting teachers direct us, put the money together, you know, you run out and you set up the thing really quick and you did. We had a great time. And then we raised a little more money and we did one and we got our first review. Back in the day, the only way you could get a review was if you went to certain local papers and you bought an advertise ad for like three hundred fifty bucks. Wow. Then you were guaranteed a review. Other than that, we couldn't get anybody to review us. And then I remember we did this play, uh, this collection of one acts called Thicker Than Water, and I called uh, Steve Lee Morris. I left him a voicemail, and I was like, "Listen, man." Can't get a review, would you please do it? I follow you, it'd be mean the world to us. And you know, to his credit, he showed up. It might be the only good review I've ever gotten by Stanley Morris, but he gave a really good review at a very important time. And it gonna go in LA Weekly, and we just started getting all these people to go to It was like, great. So then I was like, I'm gonna write a full length play. So I wrote this play called Lost and Found for my company of Javawaki. like literally everyone in the company, and all eight, oh, maybe like the six of us. Uh, I'll go a role in it. And then we cast a couple. And then I put an ad in this, there's this Yahoo user group called Big Cheap. It's all LA theater. Or maybe it was Craigslist. I fucking don't remember. Yeah. And that's how I met John Flynn. Wow. A couple directors emailed me. Most of them were nuts. But John Flynn, who was like, I, he just got off Strong Medicine. He's like, I'm looking to direct something. He read the script. He really loved the script. And then we were off to the races. And John brought a level of design to it. And we raised money. And we did it at this place called the Electric Lodge. And it was one of the best theatrical experiences I ever had. Um, Everyone was just such good friends and so in love. And the play was very, very dark but funny and about a family and very sort of edgy but beautiful and, like, you know, a little schmaltzy but, like, loving. Yeah. And different than – was sort of an emergence of my kind of brand of theater, which is, like, sort of irrespective of theater. I'm not writing, like, my homage to Chekhov. I'm like, fuck it, here's a story that captures what theater can do. So – Yeah, we did that. And that was a really big hit. We ended up extending and it just opened up a lot of doors. And then John Flynn, he was like, look, I want to start Jabberwocky. But to back up a little bit, it's like during those plays, that's when my wife and I, who were friends for years, just in this class together, we started kind of secretly dating. And then, uh, yeah, we got pregnant, we got married. And so like that acting class, that Phil Santani, like I met, I mean, that's why I have my wife. That's yeah. That's why I, it opened the door for me, and that's sort of the acting, you know, and then I was, we got pregnant, and we had our daughter, and I had to, you know, make some more money, and you know, we were auditioning a little bit, but I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Yeah. And I started working... I became an assistant to the PR department at Castle Rock Entertainment. Okay. And so I had some PR experiences and I would, you know, I would write during the day. I would write in my off hours and stuff like that. So um, I got a job at an agency uh, for my uh, Xbox, for like video games, which I liked video games. I was like, this is cool. Making enough money and then during that time I just started to work on it. And then eventually I got to a point where I was making enough as a an actor doing... Some TV and shit, but yeah. especially commercials. I had a, tons of commercials at that time. Wow. I was sort of in that sweet spot, you know, boyfriend, yeah. dad, whatever. And then uh, I just freelanced in PR. and then.
0: Did you find acting fulfilling? I mean, I know doing commercials can be tough, but... I loved it. I mean, it wasn't
1: artistically fulfilling to do commercials, but I loved the acting. And to me, acting, being on stage, being on a set, is scratched the same itch I always felt playing sports. Okay. And when I... Got too old to be on teams. I missed it. But then acting rediscovered that. And I remember being in a play with a, a, a an actor who was like in his mid-70s. And I saw how much fucking fun he was having. And I was like, this is great. And I'm like, you're never not having fun. Yeah. And you're always challenged. I'm like, what else is going to get a 75-year-old dude to be on stage running lines with me at like 28? Yeah. Just together. You know what I mean? And I was like, this is great. So. I always loved it, and I feel like acting made me a better writer, writing made me a better actor, and, and sort of that whole loop, and, you know, then just, the biggest, the most sort of fulfilling acting was being in plays I wrote, or other plays, being on stage, I did a ton of plays, but commercials paid well, and it was yeah. cool, I mean, you know, whatever, but, and then some of the TV shit was cool, but not, not most of it wasn't really. Lifting.
0: And during your time at NYU, did you have an idea of like that's where I got to do theater? Because you had the reverse commute—you came I to did. LA and got the theater. Yeah, I
1: didn't. Honestly, dude, I, the, the I'm not even joking. The second play I ever saw, I was in. Like, I remember seeing a play in at the Peterborough Players when I was in New Hampshire, and I hadn't seen another. Maybe I saw one in New York for some girl I wanted to get. You know, I Yeah. To hook up with. And it was awful. It like started with some guy pissing on stage, and I was like, "What the fuck is this?" But she, anyway, and then it was funny because like I'm like hitting on this girl, and and she's like in lingerie, getting like beaten on stage, and I was like, "This is fucking weird." I actually wrote one play based on that. Wow. But um, what were you asking me? How you did the reverse commute? Over oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just came to
0: LA because everyone comes
1: here to get in a film and TV. Yeah, and I mean, I came here yeah. for a film and TV, and then I got bit by the theater bug. And you know, LA has the biggest pool of actors in, in the world, so there's tons sure. of great talent, and there's a great theater community here. It just is different than New York.
0: And did, did you, because you didn't do the New York, did you
1: have an idea of how to navigate it here, or were you kind of just trial by fire sort of trial by fire. Yeah. Um, it was like that group of young people and it was right before we had a kid. And then, you know, we rehearsed that lost and found in the garage of a house while our daughter was like sleeping in the house with a baby monitor. So we're rehearsing and with all our friends. So, you know, we just juggled it. We made it work. We didn't know any better, you know, uh, kind of like what you guys did. You just, yeah. you do it out of heart and you, and, but you don't do it for, uh, you don't really have a, a an end goal in sight except to just do the work. Totally. And, you're not like, oh, I'm going to get discovered by this. I'm going to do that. Yeah, that. That seems to never work. But
0: Shay said this on the podcast, and I think it's the most true statement I've heard in a long time. It's like, everyone wants to win fucking American Idol now, but nobody wants to be Janice or Bob Dylan playing the subway. Right. You know what I mean? Doing, yeah. doing the work. And that's the problem, I think, with the business today. And that's awesome that you were in it for, for the real work.
1: Well, I mean, I think part of it was me also being embarrassed to be like, hey, I'm an actor. Hey, I'm this. Mm-hmm. I was just like. Well, I also had a corporate type job, you know, and I had to, I mean, look, I've had fucking a hundred jobs in my life and it was all manual labor until I moved out to LA and then, you know, started working at these places, but, and they kind of knew I did that stuff, but I couldn't, you know, nobody wants to hire you and no one wants to have you be like an account manager and you're paying your bills and getting health insurance for your new baby. If you're like, I'm also an actor. So I just innately kind of hid that and they knew it, but it was like. I had to be a hobbyist in order to have that. And it took a while to sort of transition.
0: And then talk to me about when fatherhood started, because in Small engine Repair and Roll of Seconds and Lost Girls, fatherhood's such an integral part of those narratives and that obviously had a paramount change. I
1: mean, I I think, you know, having when Sophie was born, it suddenly became like that shit or get off the pot moment where I was like, stop fucking around. And it broke through my own sort of bullshit fear of, of failure or fear of just, like, saying this is what I am. Because you can always, like, if you show up in an acting class you're like, I don't really want to fucking be here, huh? Let me learn them all. I, you know, you're get enough whatever. I don't care. I'm just going to walk around like this anyway. You know what I'm saying? Like, that back door I always had with all that shit. So, with, with having a kid, it amplified and, un, and sort of unearthed all of this Energy and stamina I had to do what I wanted to do because I was like I got to do it now I can't fuck around now. yeah I mean when I was single in L A it's like honestly like my full time job was just trying was getting laid
0: yeah I get it it's you deep, know what I mean I did the same thing when I was here
1: yeah yeah and, and, or New York anyway yeah. you wanna, I, by the way I went to New York all the time yeah the same game and, and I had a good time but it was like I wasn't putting all that energy into something more profound. Yeah. And having a daughter really looking at her in that crib and being like, Jesus, I, if I'm going to do this, I have to do this. Yeah. And figure it out and just polarize it. Maybe I won't, but I have to try. Yeah. And really, really try. So that that's what it was. But obviously, to me, that's a huge part of who I am and a huge part of uh, having a kid and looking at her with suddenly like, oh, fuck, this is what, you know, emotions are. And this is this is what it's about.
0: And was that the impetus to write Small Engine Repair, coming, having her come into your life, and
1: you know, certainly the heart of it, yeah. having that explosive level of emotion with a kid that you will literally do anything for, and yeah, for sure, I, I would, yes, definitely, being a father and having that inside me made me suddenly, you know, realize the stakes of that play personalize the stakes of that play
0: mm-hmm. and was that a narrative you had in in the works for a while the idea for or did it kind of because
1: it, it flows so well in those well kids. it started I mean I think that particular play was like for sure I, I, I wanted to say something about and I didn't know it at the time but like the sort of toxic masculinity thing and I yeah. think for me in the way I was grow up was always like I did feel comfortable in like the tough guy world but then I also had sisters and I also had that so I kind of straddled those two things and then I just I I created the Frank character as a you know Lost and Found which I was in um the character has shades of this so I sort of by doing that play I was like oh I'm good at that yeah so I kind of created the Frank character around and then you know doing Death of a Salesman doing you know uh, uh Small Tragedy, any number of plays I had done that had that these different facets of the character that I'm like, I just like playing that. So I you know created a character that I felt had this stuff that I knew I could hit with the fat part of the bat. Yeah. So I tailored that for me, and then the other characters just started to gravitate around that. And I mean, I've always been good at writing characters and dialogue, and I just felt like I made them really specific and... Did you
0: have a Swino and a and Like, Were those based loosely on Friends of yours? No, I mean,
1: inspired by yeah. to some extent, um, but not really. I mean, I, maybe as a starting off point, I think, look, everything you write, I think you just pull from some totally. stuff. But those characters, interesting in their journey, they just created their own voices, you know, and they had that. I mean, look, I grew up with a bunch of guys who had a ball-busting dynamic, um, for sure, you know, and so – which carried through with like every guy relationship I've ever had since then. Yeah. So, but I knew that sort of archetype and I knew that neighborhood and I just knew that sort of cadence. Um, and that and,
0: Northeastern Manchester culture had a big
1: impact on that, on
0: that piece. Was that something that you were reflecting on growing up and just being in LA? Did it change the context of, of your environment growing up? Yeah, I look- mean, I
1: think what happens is I didn't want to grow up. I didn't want to live in New Hampshire. I knew I had to leave and, I left. It's not so much being homesick, but it's just as my voice as a writer was created, I was just like, I know that world better than any other world. So Small Indoor Pair could have taken place in upstate New York, but I just felt, oh, let, let me just literally make it in be- the backyard of where I grew up. Yeah, you know, Not me, but characters I just know. I just know how they sound. Yeah, I can have a couple of drinks and sink into that thing. <clears throat> I just knew the authenticity of it would aid the story. So that's just why I did that. And, you know, I think at that point, as a writer, I was starting to sort of see, you know, uh, you know, Lost and Found took place in Medford, Massachusetts, because I was like, who fucking cares about Manchester, New Hampshire? It's Medford. Yeah. And then the next play I wrote took place in Maine. And then I was like, well, look, maybe I just write a play that takes place, like literally where I grew up. Just because, I mean, really on a lazy level, I'm like, I know the streets. I know where they eat. I just (laughs) know that stuff. There's no research. Yeah, of course. And you write. It's like the more specific you are, the more universal it is. Now, I do think, I mean, I do think you write what you know, but I also think you can get pigeonholed with that and you don't want to do that. But yeah. in this particular instance, I was like, well, fuck it, let me do it. I just knew I could make it truthful. And if, if I was to have it take place elsewhere, I would just be spending more time, you know, researching and doing all that stuff. Yeah, I just thought it'd be fun. I mean, honestly, kind of, that play started out sort of as an exercise. My wife was producing Late Night. There was a play, uh, Sunset Limited by Corinth McCarthy at, at Road Machine in the Small Space. And she was like, hey, why don't you do a late night? You, All it happens is they have a show from 8 to 10. And then you just have to use their set and their lighting grid. Wow. So we had Sunset Limit. It was a shitty old apartment. And then I was like, I had this idea. Things started to click. I mean, I wrote the first draft of Smaller Repair in like three days. It changed immensely. Yeah. The, <laughs> the first draft, everyone got along a lot better. And then we just infused it with, you know, everything. And then I was just like, you know what? Every answer should be a question. Every fucking thing. So then that's when it started to pop. And then... You know, when I wrote that first draft, I was like, they're going to kill him at the end. And then once I got into it, I was like, that's not what this is about. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, we create, I wrote this play that lights are up, you do the play and lights are down because they had to use their light grid. And and they their set was an old shitty apartment. And we're like, you know. So you had to go with a single setting. We had to go with a single setting. Yeah. How to use that. So we just put pegboard with tools and clamped it up. And, and you know, we had 15 minutes to set it up. And, wow. Wow. Uh, I what had, an exercise it was yeah. I had done uh, Lost and Found uh, um, ah. at the Fringe Festival in New York um, and this guy Andrew Block directed it and it was a huge hit at the Fringe and it was a great experience In Fringe Festival have you ever done the Fringe? I haven't done it but I, I have a lot of friends that have done it yeah, so you yeah. come in you yeah. switch. so we already had that in mind so yeah. I was like we just took that thing and he directed Lost and Found and then he directed you know, Small pair in LA ah. and uh, so it was kind of built on that whole sort of aesthetic you know what i mean yeah um yeah, So we clicked it and me and you know all was in it and the guy michael redfield and josh hellman we were all we'd like change in the hallway wow and then just like run on set and it was a smash hit here in la yeah well yeah. i mean we we had one preview with like six people and we were like i don't know man maybe people will walk out of this shit we don't know because i was like fuck it it's late man i'm not gonna pull any punches yeah and uh yeah, yeah totally resonated
0: and as, as we spoke before we started airing, you know, the piece, it, it, it's a dark comedy, but it, it, it really is a drama at heart. But the comedy and the play in particular, it, it's so heavy and I'm curious when you were doing the play, because I did it as well, that was the only play in my life I've ever done that like every night it was so hard because I didn't know every audience was so fucking different. Like yeah. where, where it hit, where it didn't hit, or, like the lines that I thought were funny weren't funny the next night, and then other lines that weren't funny were like getting huge. Like, I I've think I've that's never to been to some that
1: extent else. that's true with any play, but I think small under repair it's amplified because something happens with where there's a you know these jokes. There's two or three jokes at the beginning that you're like, oh, if they laugh at that, that's the audience. Yeah, like. they laugh exactly. At that. And some of the really fucked up lines, if you get a big laugh, you're like. This is gonna be a fun night. Yeah, a hundred percent. And by the way, I mean, look, it's hard because when you're in a play, it's hard not to judge an audience. Yeah, but sometimes people just listen. Yeah, some people laugh different or whatever. Some people laugh. They, like, I mean, I've had reviewers. I've seen them, and they're like <laughs> clapping and laughing, and then they shit all over your play. So you just never know. Oh, oh. Birdman style. Fuck. Yeah. No, you never <laughs> know. Uh, but yeah, for sure that we yeah we just didn't know. But you didn't stop and. and uh, yeah. I mean, it was fucking great. We, we did it, but it was ten thirty. people came in. They had a couple of drinks. You could bring a drink in there. It was rowdy. You know, we were breaking shit on stage. We didn't know what the fuck we were doing half the time. And then, uh, <laughs> we actually did that play one night and the, the power went out at the theater, like before, uh, Swain even shows up. And, uh, we're like, they're going to stop this, aren't they? And then we saw our technical director was there. He like ran back. We're like, let's just keep going. Yeah. So we had a bunch of flashlights on the stage, flashlights. And then a bunch of the like, theater members in the audience opened up their phones and like lighting us. So we're like, we keep going. We keep going. And the lights don't go on. The lights go. We're like, fuck. We keep doing it. John shows up. You know, Bernthal's up. He's doing it. We're going to go. Shit's breaking left and right. Yeah. And we're like, just trying to get through it. <laughs> And we laugh at it now because we're like, you always think recollecting the story, you'd be like, and it was the most grounded we have ever been. It was an awful show. We were yeah. way over. We're like, and then fucking Josh Hamilton played Chad, he comes up on stage. He's like been waiting in the wings and like figuring out his improv line to be like, what? Did you forget to pay the electric bill? <laughs> and we just fucking look at him and we're like, huh. And then we just did the play. Um, and then it ended and everybody, you know, whatever, clapped. Like, yeah, yeah, cool. Sure. You know, Kevin Spacey was in the audience that night. No serious. way. Yeah. And, you know, Did you talk to him after? Yeah, we did a little bit, but, like, it's funny because, you know, he played Swaino. Swaino says the most awful shit of anything. I mean, he's really... the. The character who is the most unfiltered libertine just says this shit. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, man, I, I mean, I didn't play Sueno, but like, I know the actors who have, they're like, sometimes I know I'm going to say a line and those are the lines that people are either going to laugh at or groan and it's hard. Like, I know. I have
0: my mom in the audience saying the pussy lines, which is like, oh, and my mom oddly got it. You know what I
1: mean? Like, well, it's so obvious he's full of shit. If yeah. Yeah. But so we did that, that show was awful. And then afterwards we came out. Some people were like, it's so interesting that you decided to have the play with the lights go off. And we're like, no, that, that wasn't intentional. Um, but we, at that point, had done it so much. And then we moved it a bunch of times. But we were really, you know, I, I mean, we also had it when it was initially done, like you had to walk across the set to go sit in the audience. So you're, once you're there, you're there. You're the yeah. Audience. You can't fucking move. So people maybe wanted to leave, they just couldn't. And, and having this
0: head and being a father and, and having the fringe and all this, was this, I don't want to put words in your mouth, I'm asking here, but was this the moment where you're like, I, I can fucking do
1: this? I mean, I always knew that I could write. I just didn't know necessarily how to translate that. I mean, I, I literally was just doing that field of dreams bullshit, which was like, build it and they will come. Yeah. You know, I wrote a bunch of terrible screenplays. I just didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I didn't. Were you levels. trying to sell them? Yeah, not even Pat, I was trying to sell them. I, I don't even know what I was doing. But then once theater hooked into me, I kind of subconsciously knew that. It was like, okay, it's like, remember Bill and Ted's where they're like, want to be rock stars, but they're like, we don't know how to play guitar. And then <laughs> they go in that time warp and they come back and they spent like four years and their hair's long. So I was kind of like, I gotta learn
0: everything yeah
1: and so I just dove into theater and acting in theater writing theater doing it and every play I did or wrote or everything I could just feel it becoming clearer and clearer and then uh, I you know I always wanted to but I was just like let me just do this theater thing let me just see how far I can make it and you know very early I did a play called Razorback too earlier on and you know there were people who like make it into a movie and uh, you know I looked into that but of course it went nowhere and then you know, Small Engine Repair had a lot of opportunities to... I mean, having a
0: smash hit in L.A. is nothing short of a fucking coup. You know, uh, a heater piece. Well, it, it did. I
1: think back then, more so now, the industry is, like, really hungry for playwrights. Yeah. Back then, not as much. Um, it was sort of... My manager, who I'm with, Noah, who I think you met, he was actually in that very first reading at, uh, um, of the play. He was, like, 22 years old, and now he's, like, a man. But he... He and the team were a little different at the time where they're like, look, let's not send out a screenplay as his writing sample. Let's send out plays. So they sent out you know, Small and Repair, Lost Girls or whatever for people to read. And that's got me my first jobs because they, people were starting to be more open at different things. And now it's like they hire playwrights left and right, especially for TV, yeah. never having written screenplays or, or teleplays or whatever. Wow. But at that time, it was kind of new. So I, I was just like focused on keep doing the work. In trying to push forward
0: and, and let's see where it goes. You know? and, and how did the Broadway bound thing happen? The, the producers obviously knew it worked here. They No, That stuff.
1: was kind of a longer thing. I mean, and we had, um, what, what was the gap between the LA production and New York production? Like two years, two years, which I thought was a long time, but it was really not.
0: I, I, well, I remember when I saw the play, I was like, did this guy fucking write this
1: last night? Cause it was just so topical. Well, I updated a little bit. Okay. Technology wise and, and not a ton though, but we had a, a reading, um, I had this former manager but we set up this reading with uh, Joe Mantello was directing and it was like fucking Tom Sadowski and Pablo Schreiber and this guy Chris Fitzgerald I don't know if you know who he is I know yeah he was playing Packy and then this other dude who uh, and the reading was great and it filled up and I was like oh this is cool but if something in my heart felt off because I was like you know what that should be me there yeah and Tom Sadowski is a great actor but I was like he's not he, doesn't he really was playing good. Frank yeah oh. I mean, it was a read yeah but they were also thrilled about the reading. They're like, let's get that exact cast. Let's hit go. Let's hit go. And I was like, huh. And um, then, you know, I was talking to Burnthal. And Burnthal is like uh, one of my dearest friends, but he's just one of those rare guys I've met who like makes me feel empowered to do the shit I want to do. Yeah. Like, and he's like, fuck it, dude. He's like, we should do it. Like, why don't we do it? And I was like, you know what? You're right. And so we took control over it. And then we shopped around and said, hey, he and I are going to be in it. And And at that point, he had The Walking Dead. He had The Walking Dead season two. I mean, he he wasn't a slam dunk that he is now. But back then, it was like up and coming. He wasn't the issue. It was more like, well, what are you going to do? So he had done a play with Joe Bonney. We met with Joe. She read the play. She really liked it. Joe, who's collaborated with me on many plays now, she's like, I mean, I love her. I, I, yeah. she's, you know, she's my, one of my most frequent collaborators in theater. I think she's incredible. So she ended up directing it. Bernthal had to drop out because he got that movie Fury, but we just said, fuck it, let's do it. <clears throat> and MCC was, you know, gracious enough to do it and take it on. And, you know, I think cause I did it in LA and was, maybe they read reviews or whatever. They're like, fuck it. Plus it's kind of a cool story. The guy who wrote it is in yeah. It. Um, I mean, I've always, did feel like as an actor, I've always, you know, it's like harder if you produce something and you do it, you have extra to prove. hundred percent. And I think my approach to that character was always like, I'm just going to act it real, not like, like the writer, I me knows the story. I'm just going to act it that way as opposed to, I think the trap with any actor, but especially that character is to play him the lead. And it's like, Frank's strength in the movie and in the plays is just that he fucking listens. He's just there. Those other guys are much bigger. And, and broader, and they take up more oxygen in the room, but he just has shit going on. So I was always like, I want to do it, but I also know I can do it in the way I think it needs to be done. Yeah. And um, then working with Joe, who just, you know, Andrew was a really great director. We didn't know what we had. We kind of did it in a rush, and we did all that stuff, and Joe took that work and just continued to refine it and deepen it. And she had her own theme of the play that came out. And I just learned so much from working with Joe, and she ended up directing a lot of other plays I did. But were James and both James's were those friends of yours? Or were I they- knew Badge very well. And when John had to drop out, he was like, "Let's talk to Badge." And I'm like, I'm a, "I've always been a huge fan of Badge." I, did, you know, I became we became brothers doing the play. But at yeah. that point, I really respected him and admired him. But Badge is, a, you know, he he's a real sweet guy, but he's a bit of a kind of loner. He's yeah. not 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 aloof, but he just it takes a little while to get to know him. But once you're in with that guy, the guy will do anything for you. And you know PJ? Do you know PJ? I I've met him. A, I mean, yeah, we had mutual friends. Yeah, and he's like, dude. I, he's like, I fucking hate the. Arm, Ziggy had The Wire. You know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and
1: which ironically, we have that
0: wire. I know that dude, so When that, when that line landed, I was like,
1: D- was this planned? So, like, this is the most meta shit I've ever was seen. <laughs> so weird. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, and, and he, we had you know auditioned, and originally we were going to cast another actor, and then we were like just PJs. That weird. You're get this thing on. Oh, don't worry about it. Yeah. yeah, so he, you know, he came aboard, and then it was really hard to find Keegan, the, the Chad character. And I don't know how you guys had that. We had a, the the and the same with the movie. That character was really hard to cast. Yeah, that uh, it's a quick little
0: side, but it's funny. It's like my Chad works at the Chateau Marmont, and we, um, oh, okay. I'm gonna like save this, you know, because I want people to experience the movie. But we went to a screening. I got to see it. it. Was incredible. But it was funny because the, the guy that played my chat, I had to bring him because all of my cast did the play for free. And he called out Sick of the Chateau that night to come to the screen. <laughs> so he, I, and then so we, all ended up. we ended up the Chateau and he like hits his boss like, so funny thing uh yeah. I need to come and they wouldn't let him come so he just staying outside the whole time oh shit I didn't know that yeah I didn't want to make
1: him think so like, oh, that's why I kicked and I had to dip out I don't, but yeah yeah I it was so funny man but yeah so then that character is just I mean like you said it's hard because you need to have you know he's got to have a certain physicality to him yeah but he has to be a really good actor and it's just hard in that like, you know, it's like having a casting call where you're like, stunning, drop-dead gorgeous blonde with perfect body. Yeah. You're made probably not get the best actors. And Chad has a physical requirement, so a lot of times you get in guys who, they're just younger and they're not at a point with career where they've really explored their craft because they haven't necessarily had to because they're just booking gigs, Booking genetics, yeah. Yeah, booking genetics. So, uh, you know, we get locked down. Sounds like you've got the right guy, but, you know, because that play doesn't work without him. The movie doesn't work out with him. It's just, it, it's always an interesting thing. Thing
0: uh, and, and and then I'm so curious, like, because the play is really deals with the not. It's really from. It's a female story, but it, there's no females in it, and that's so interesting that it it resonates that way in this post Me Too environment. And and who would have known, you know, in 2011? Now that we live in that, but it the the play becomes so much more interesting now. In that post,
1: it does seem to resonate more now. I, I mean, you know. With like, the, I'm curious to talk
0: to you about the sex thing and the toxic masculinity where the, were, was that something that you had friends
1: experience or like not really, I mean, I remember reading something about the, the sex thing and the bullying behind that. And to me, it was just like, I just wanted to be truthful. And I think when you're truthful, it's, you don't have to chase a trend or not. Sometimes you luck out and that, that truth you're exploring becomes resonant. But like, I think people are kind of full of shit when they're like, oh, I love this play because it's so echoing what's going on in our life. Like, we can make that connection. But if you're specific and truthful, it's universal. Like, the universal themes of it don't need... The technology aspect of Small Under Repair attracted me simply for the thematic and the character stuff, which is like, here's these guys in a shifting world. Who gives a fuck about the technology? But the point is, is this technology takes these pre-existing things and it amplifies it. Yeah. And these guys don't necessarily know. I feel like my generation, we didn't grow up with that. I mean, you're younger. You still remember a part in your life when you didn't
0: have a hundred percent I
1: didn't get one until I was 17. Yeah. But yeah. suddenly you're now surrounded by people who never really had that experience. My daughter never had that. I mean, they just, they have that. Yeah. So that transitional moment is is sort of where, you know, the, the analog, digital sort but of. It's just yeah. thematic of these yeah. guys like who you know, trying to catch up and maybe never catching up really. And that's part of the class story. And I spoke
0: to this with Tom Fontana when he was on the show and he's created one of my all time favorite shows, Oz. Oh yeah. And, um, you, you guys remind me a lot of each other, both in style and substance. And particularly even now with his show, you know, the Boston narrative with Kevin Bacon. Um, God, I haven't seen that yet. Uh, it's great. It's, it story. was awesome. And, uh, but I'm curious when you were writing this, you know, I, I, this the shit the piss the fuck the cunt like you know same same thing with Tom when he was writing Oz you know that that had never really been seen on television before HBO's first ever original content those you know it's not often in Broadway can be kind of a tight ass environment were you nervous at all I think
1: I was drawn to theater at a time where it was a lot more provocative and theater was designed to question not just culture but question the audience and people again I talk about you know Mamet Sarah Kane you know uh, Mark McDonnell these guys were in gals where you're like watching their plays and you're like complicit in something going on it's complicated it's punk rock It's yeah. unearthing shit that's what drew me to theater because certainly movies weren't doing it um you know theater things change I feel like theater has is in a transitional time right now I don't feel like I think it's probably harder to be more provocative in theater now for sure but when I was writing small engine repair that was the Time where theater was the place that that language is acceptable mm-hmm. and embraced, and not edgy for edgy sakes, but like let's just fucking go for it. Yeah, and talk about these things, you know. I mean, you read like sexual adversities and yeah, and totally. uh, you know, uh, I mean, Sarah Kane wrote a play that's like one of the most disturbing things I've ever read. Have you ever read her play? Is it was it lasted? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, always, she- yeah, I mean, it's crazy, but and and uh, she really affected me. She actually committed suicide and. I was listening to some interviews on her and I just thought she I mean I wish I could have met her I just think she sounds like such an amazing person but she, her, her thing was look, she goes I made an anti-war play I'm an optimist I want to, to make it as brutal and fucked up as it could be so that you would emerge thinking there's something wrong with this Yeah, and that's sort of holding up a mirror that's sort of let's go to, to these really dark morally complicated places so that we can create a dialogue and maybe actually have real change. And I think the danger becomes when you want to create everything, a utopic version of the way the world should be, as opposed to creating art that is reporting on things. Mm -hmm. And Miss Mollinger Pair falls somewhere in the middle of that, but certainly from the moment it started, the play was like, all bets are off and you're either with it or you're against it. Now, some people bristle at that, but I mean, I got to say as a case study, for the play having walked off that stage hundreds of times in LA and New York, that women actually resonated with them more than any other, like kind of demographic. Yeah. I mean, dudes like, like us, we, but in a general way, as women, like first wave feminists were all like, I fucking got what you're saying there. Yeah. You know, I get it. Like they get past that stuff and it's like, in order to say what you wanted to say, they get that you have to say it in a certain
0: way. Totally. And you have such a beautiful letter in, in the book, uh, the book version of the play. I, can, I don't know if that's in the Samuel French version, oh, that right. you, the preface that I you think, wrote. I think
1: it was only in the trade paperback.
0: Oh, okay. Well, it, it was in the one that we got. And it was it's so incredible. I highly recommend anyone listening pick it up. But then I'm curious because it, it got extended and it was a smash hit in New York. Uh-huh. After that, did, did you kind of, feel exhausted by theater because then you did you, you had lost girls already in the pipeline or so
1: after small and repair was at mcc we were going to do a commercial run and it just didn't work out because you know doing a commercial straight play off broadway run is just we had investors we had money but it was like you have to run at like 70 percent capacity for something like nine and a half ten months just to break even it's just really hard yeah. that's why broadway is a much better model cause you make a massive amount of money in a shorter time and it can have a return. Now, the only way to do Broadway, which we explored for a little bit, you would have had to have fucking, you know, Matt Damon. And yeah.
0: Whatever. Ben Affleck. Or, or Casey Affleck. Affleck. Or, yeah. Or whatever.
1: Yeah. Or, or, yeah, yeah. or Tom, you know, Tom yeah. Hardy. I mean, great actors, but you would have had to get those and that's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, or it's really hard to happen. Sometimes you luck out. Um, <clears throat> but they lost girls while I was doing small repair in New York. Um, I was on stage. And, ooh, Jen, my wife, was doing Lost Girls here in LA, and that simultaneously, wow! And then that play really took off in LA. It ran for like a year. It just resonated a lot. Um, and then MCC read the script, and then they wanted to do it. So we had they they had a Play Labs reading, and they read the play, and it just killed in the audience. And then yeah, you know, they produced it. Wow! So uh, and then while I was doing those two plays, I was workshopping Rules of Seconds with Joe Bonney. And then we, um, I love Rules of Seconds. Yeah, I, I mean that's it's, honestly my favorite play. I mean, just it's so fun. And yeah, they've done it. You, you have not published it yet, right? No, I haven't published it. It's incredible. It reminds me did. so much of Harold Pinner yeah. at his prime. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of like a yeah. period piece. Yeah, it's yeah. sort, of sort of a very much thematically resonant with like Small and Repair and Yeah. bloody and it's fucked up. And to me, it was like Deadwood and like. It's, it's funny because my survival much. job is like, I work at Hamilton,
0: so it's like so funny with the duels and oh yeah yeah, yeah. at the musical yeah. Oh really? I, I'm a bartender at Hamilton. Oh cool! It's a, one of the, I That's work for
1: Niederlander, so I work at all the oh, shows. Oh cool! I've never seen that. Like, yeah, I'm dying to see that play. Um, but if you want, I'll hook it up. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But uh, so we workshopped that, and then we eventually, you know, did it in L.A. and and you know, it's a big cast, it's expensive. It was always like, I don't know if we get it to New York. We haven't had much luck with that yet. But it's been done. This, um, this guy did it in Pittsburgh, this guy I got to know really good who did Small Engine. He's like, What else do you got? I gave him a little seconds. They did it. I flew out and saw that show. That was was it was fucking amazing. Wow. It was like we did it downtown on a bigger budget and it was like an equity show. Um and it was beautiful. Joe Bonney did it and it was great. Yeah. He did like sort of the unplugged version of it in like a black box with like just it was like wood, reclaimed wood stage, and it was just that they put money into the costumes and to the blood effects, and like it, chairs came in and out, but that was it. And it was fucking great. Wow. And that's a play that really resonates with so much going on right now. That was what was fun about it because it's sort of heightened, has some sort of satirical elements. Totally. It. I yeah. I always, I always love that. I just thought that that play was really fun. Yeah. In the characters. Um, I mean, that's kind of the last thing i mean i have other play ideas but since then you know my sort of screenwriting career took off so I've yeah
0: and talk some to some me stuff. about that were you you wrote stronger with Jake hall which i dare say is he's one of his best if not most undervalued you know everyone loves you know nightcrawler but stronger i mean
1: God. yeah he no, did a great job yeah that was were, sort of the, were you aware of the book and no that was like i mean that's definitely the script that sort of launched my career yeah. to a whole other level i you know i had uh they got the book rights Before the book was published, they were just. Looking did you at know about Jeff's? I mean, everyone knew about the bombing, but I did, knew about the bombing. I did yeah. a story. I had an excerpt of the book. Uh, I mean, it was funny. It came along at a time in my career where I hardly get anything sent my way. You know, every now and then I do a little rewrite here, an assignment here, try to get shit to happen. Yeah. Right? Nobody was like. W-. So I think when they got that, they're like, New England who is this? So they read a couple of my plays, and they were like, Okay, this guy's from the area. Yeah. And I read the excerpt, and I was like, Dude, I, I know that. Like, I literally grew up twenty minutes away from here. And then, you know, it was a hard sell. And then I put together a massive amount of time putting the pitch together for that. And one of the producers on that was Scott Silver, who was really a great mentor. And now we're kind of writing scripts together. We really hit it off. Amazing. He's from Worcester. And he's written, you know, The Fighter and 8 Miles. Yeah. So fucking awesome, dude. <laughs> he just always busts my balls for doing it. like, what the fuck are you doing plays? <laughs> um, so... We just pitched this real hard sell and you know, we sold it. And then, uh, was, was Jake always attached for Jeff? He was not okay, uh, so I wrote the script and then the script just floated around for a while and it got on the blacklist, it got like way up on the list. So wow. that got me a lot of attention. Yeah, so, I was gonna
0: say that must have ignited
1: it, it totally, it put so, you on the radar. radar it totally, sure. And then, you know, look, as a screenwriter, it's like there's a lot of very successful writers who've never had a film made, and then once you get a film made and they see that it works. It's a whole other thing. Let alone movie. with the biggest And I think are. people – that was one of those rare scripts that, one, I just had the time to really curate. And, two, it was a good uh, – very fortuitous that it was like New England. It's like Small Under a It's those same characters. You were of that was, world. Yeah. Of that world. Right. And I think – you know, I think the, the, the movie came out beautifully. And I think the script was different than the movie. But the script, I think, in some ways resonated even deeper with people because they weren't picturing – the actors, they were just had that experience yeah. of, the, of reading it. And yeah. it's a great read. Um, you know, the, the producers, especially Scott, like beat the shit out of me to write that fucking draft. Really learned how to write a studio movie yeah. for them. So then, yeah, as soon as that was done, it like, I've been
0: kind of nonstop working on stuff. So.
1: And, and can you
0: talk about what you're working on now? Yeah, I mean, sure. Right? you did say that small ones <laughs> the movies come out and we won't say what, but you submitted to some potential festivals. Yeah, and so, so- I
1: at the festival circle of that. And then, Right now, I'm working on a Hulk Hogan uh, movie. Amazing. Scott and I are writing that. Um, a biopic? Yeah, kind of. I mean, it's pretty... It's, it's, you'll have to see it. It's, yeah, I can't wait. We're writing that. Todd Phillips is attached to direct. Chris Hemsworth is supposed to play his Hulk Todd Phillips so huge. About to have the Joker hit with Shay. Yeah, yeah. with yeah. Shay. And yeah. Scott wrote that with Todd. No way. So, uh, Which I'm really excited about. So that's the big thing I have. I just delivered a smaller movie, which is sort of a passion project that I think was a beautiful story. Uh, this basketball story about this small uh, high school in Tennessee. I'll tell you offline. I don't know if I yeah. can talk about that one. And then um, Scott and I wrote a fucking awesome Evil Knievel biopic. No way. Last year. And hopefully that gets me. Yeah. It's so good. Um, yeah. And then, you know, just some other shit popping around, trying to figure out what's next. I mean, I hope to get to direct another movie and, I gotta say, you know, I, I said we wouldn't talk about it much, but your directing absolutely
0: blew me away. And uh, somebody's both near to you, our Shay Wiggum, and I were had a long dive yesterday talking about it. Like, man, I I, I think you're about to become the biggest fuck. Uh, you heard it here first on the podcast,
1: you know? Famous last in,
0: in, in a year, I'm gonna have to go through five channels of
1: CAA to fucking get you to yeah, do one I don't of these I mean, um, it was interesting. Somebody gave me some great advice behind, I mean like before I was directing that movie, I just called fucking everybody I knew. And some of the great best piece of advice I got two or three things. One of them was like, hire the best people and get out of the way. Yeah. You get Shay Wiggum. Um, and then one was like, you just have to figure out what kind of director you are. Who, what kind of director.
0: And you said obviously Scorsese who was, who was influencing you. I mean,
1: look, I fucking Scorsese the best. (laughs) I I love Tarantino. I know that's a different thing, but, uh, you know, Cassavetes, all this shit. But for me, a lot of it was, I mean, obviously, I honestly, Joe Bonnie was a huge influence for me And the way I see her work with actors and her tell a story. Granted it's on stage, but I really took a lot of those principles that I learned in theater and tried to apply them. And I was like, okay, well, that's the kind of director I am. <clears throat> There's other areas that I can do better, but you you learn. But then I just made sure I hired like a kick-ass DP who would get the visuals yeah. and would be like, well, do you want a phosphorus light or This and I was like, "Yeah." I'm like, i don't fucking." Know do what to you talk
0: about do this you shit. feel like in a in a weird way, stronger was maybe your film school creating It the was.
1: I I did, and I and I became very close to David Gordon Green. He's become he was one like, of the best. And you know, man, and and I remember having a dinner with David around the time I was getting this up, and I was like, "Look, was, you know, the world was." with me too and all that stuff and just trying to wrap my head around it and be like, look, I didn't want to add something to the dialogue that's going to, you know, reduce the momentum or just say the wrong thing. And he was just like, look, dude, if you have to apologize for it, don't do it. But if you believe in your heart, in what you're doing just fucking do it and I was like you know you're right so that was like a really key moment but I I, I shadowed him through the most of the production of Stronger and I learned a ton oh, so I you mean, were I, on set for most of it yeah yeah. I mean, David Gordon brings a huge influence in the way he makes movies it's and which is cool, really cool. to watch Jake realize that role that you created you know? yeah I mean yeah for sure uh, you know and, and seeing Jake as an actor he's a different actor than like I am in the, the way I kind of want to work with he's very intense yeah uh, you know, I uh,
0: I met him recently,
1: and he I saw him. On, yeah, like, he works his fucking ass off. Yeah, he loves theater. I love that about him. Yeah, you. he does. He yeah. does. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was really interesting watching. But you know, again, it was like seeing you know David working with every different actor, like like Joe does, who Joe is a master at saying. And even you know, my wife's directing a play now, and I see her has that same instinct, which is like you just have to identify what kind of actor you're dealing with. Yeah, everybody has a different thing. Totally. Oh. And as soon as you figure that out you just you're not manipulating them, but you're like, okay, here's how I give you that. Now here's how you do that. And so like, you know, working with Shay is this very specific thing. And it's more like how do you harness that actor? Totally. Now you could be like, no, you gotta fucking do it this way and this way. And ultimately at the end of the day, a great actor would be like, listen, if you need me to do that, I'll do that. And there's like three or four lines in the movie that Shea was like, look I don't know about this, but I'll do it. Yeah. And two of them are huge laughs. <laughs> like, you were right about that. <laughs> but the vast majority of time, with yeah. someone like Shay, for example, is you're like, he's like the canary down the shaft. If he starts flapping away, you're like, hold on a second. Like, Shay, when you say, yeah, just think this and that? Because, you know, a g- great actor knows more about that character than than you as a writer, you as a director, or anything. Yeah. So you really have to cast well and get that. And obviously, John and I are, burnt the line, like, super collaborative, uh, creative partners. We work on a bunch of shit together. He and I, have a lot of stuff lined up. Um, so I had him, and, and but Shea, and, and we just innately had that, I and mean, we're really good friends. We had that relationship all built in, but with Shay, it was like, I just wanted a ton from him. And, yeah. And he's just very specific. I mean, there's a reason the guys and everything. hundred you know, percent. Same with John. Yeah. I mean, all the actors, I really lucked out on. Well, it was such a lesson hanging with you guys the
0: other night of, like, how to be... Fucking cool. I mean, everyone on this podcast has been incredible. Kathleen Turner. There's been so many badass people. Oh, you guys. Kathleen Turner, that's cool. Yeah, Kathleen. It's been so great to me. Um, But it was so cool just to see you guys doing the work that every actor, writer, doing and just being so fucking cool about it. You know what I mean? Because it's easy to get trapped, especially in LA, of being a fucking cunt. And that's my words. You know what I mean? Yeah,
1: no. I I totally know what you're saying. Yeah. I think... You know, for small engine repair, that the play nor the movie, and especially in many ways the movie, would not have worked if you didn't have people who really wanted to be there. We're there for the right reasons. I mean like we didn't have trailers, you know? We were, yeah. <laughs> people are working their ass off. I mean, Shay was he's like, dude, he's like, I work more in one day and say more dialogue in one day in this movie than I do in like four days on that.
0: And episode. I think he's had more fun than he has. He ever- does. Yeah, yeah. But you yeah. just you're there. So yeah. you
1: just had to have actors with the right attitude doing it. And Jordana, same kind of thing, you know, I put my wife in it, she's fucking great. So you just got people who wanted to be there. Totally. And they do that extra inch. And a lot of it is is you just say to them, "Is like, yeah, this is your value, like, yeah. let's talk, you know. Uh, I'm not afraid of actors. I love actors. It's my favorite thing. So I, I mean, that's just where I come from. But if you get somebody in there who is a cunt, uh, man or woman, who is like you know prima donna and yeah. doesn't want to do it, then it's not going to work. No. So you have to vet that really well. I mean, we had Deborah Quilla and Alison Estrin as our casting directors. Yeah, that's great. Didn't bring people in the room who, unless they were like, this is somebody who's going to like have the right attitude and really want to be there. And and I'm curious, uh, before we wrap
0: up, I'd really like to talk to you about this because it's something I talk a lot on this podcast is it's such a tough time in the business, you know, where I feel like we're watching the death of the middle budget American movie. You know, it it doesn't make sense for studios to do $10 million movies anymore. It makes sense for them to do a $250 million (laughs) corporate property and do 20 of them. Right. I feel like you know the the movies that you and I grew up loving. They're fewer and far between, and it's either you know you're in fucking Venom 17 or you do an NYU student film for two hundred fifty thousand dollars that wins Sundance. And as you're writing these scripts, how has it been finding you know ones that aren't a Marvel property or, or DC property, getting financing or getting it together? Is it right. do, you, do you feel like the content speaks I mean, for, for me- itself?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I think that there's more distribution opportunities now than in a lot of ways, which is which is cool, but, like, I mean, most of the stuff I work on are, tend to be worked through a studio, and they're more sort of prestige movies, you know? I'm not... And I'd love to, maybe. Like, I, I think I'd have a blast on, like, a Guardians of the Galaxy type thing, but I'm just not in that space. I mean, people building off of Stronger are like, oh, that's his sort of thing. Yeah. We, everybody... Even though they're making Marvel movies, all the studios, everybody still wants to make movies with, like, a deep emotional impact. For sure. Uh, whether you call them awards movies or not. So, I mean, that's kind of the space I'm in. But, like, I mean, I've just been lucky with that. But, uh, you know, Small Under Repair as an indie is the first time I've done that indie thing. And, you know, but I do think you're right. There's, like, a huge gap. Maybe, yeah. whatever, 20 years ago we could have brought this team to someplace and gotten the financing to do Small Under Repair through a studio. They just don't want really do that.
0: Totally. It was like, I was watching Mystic River the other day, and I was like, I feel like now this movie would never get made, you know?
1: I mean, I don't know. Look, I think, I definitely think they're making less movies. I think the pendulum swings. I think we just have to figure out a lot of, you know, how the streaming services work and all that stuff. I mean, I I did a job for uh, Netflix last December when I I had a good time with them. I'm writing Hogan for them. I mean, I think that that's cool. You get so many people to see your shit. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I also love sitting in a movie theater. Yeah.
0: You
1: know what have that. Uh, and is that
0: important to you as a filmmaker and an actor, that Swan to Repair gets the theatrical distribution? Or is that something <coughs> that you think might be an old guard way of, of going about?
1: I don't know yet. I mean, I think that I'm excited to, like, do the festival things. Yeah. Obviously, I think... <clears throat> I don't necessarily think it's nostalgia. I think part of it is, like, I like I'm like i dying to be in an audience 100%. at a theater and watch that. I movie. saw Ad Astro last night at the Light. I would never...
0: Well, it's the communal yeah. quality
1: of that, and and I, I like that. I mean, I'm still old school in that way. I, I I mean, knock on what I'd love it to be played in theaters to some extent,
0: and it will be. I know, mean,
1: yeah. hopefully,
0: yeah. Who knows? Yeah, um, <coughs> that's awesome. Well, I, I don't know if you like people too, but I always ask <coughs> this at the end if, if people would like to stay in touch with your work. What's a good way for that to happen? Instagram
1: oh um, I mean I guess like IMDB I have IMDB stuff. I mean I, I just do I'm kind of private on social media totally you know what I mean like uh, there's a chance to plug yourself we can cut it if you don't want to yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, yeah. I just think you Google it. I mean I'd love it if people you know um, read the plays read the plays produced the plays yeah and, you know, I think Rules of Seconds will be will be published pretty soon and I'm working as soon as I turn the corner on some of oh. these scripts i like, I have a couple plays I gotta get back into so I, I love theater I'll continue to do that.
0: yeah well John it was such a pleasure to have you on I hope one day we finally get to work Together. Yeah, it's such an honor to call you a friend. I'm so excited for your small engine repair. Thanks, dude. All right, man. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.